It's Monday, November 2nd. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, the one and only Morgan Housel. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's not really Monday. That's true. We're, it's it's it, actually Thursday. <laughs> we're taping this ahead of time um, because Monday. You probably could have slipped that past me, though. Because, and we're going to get to your sleep deprivation in a moment, uh, because we're at Foolapalooza on Monday and Tuesday. That's right. Uh, our annual meeting at the Motley Fool, but we didn't, we didn't want to deprive the dozens of listeners of just a little bit of audio content for their commute, for their bike ride, for their walking their dog, whatever. However people listen. However you listen, we want to be here for you. Do you ever worry, though, that something's going to happen between now and Monday? Something huge, and we're going to sound just oblivious? Um so we're taping this ahead of time. So if something big happens between now and Monday, and we're not talking about it. That's why we're sorry and good luck. <laughs> good luck. Wait a minute. You say that like it's it's happening to some of our listeners. Well, you know, it's like well, there was that there was that thing. There was that thing where they <laughs> discovered Bigfoot in Chicago, and he yeah. was rampaging. Good luck. Um, we're going to dip into the full mailbag, but let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the Fed um, because. Much to my chagrin, and certainly probably to to a greater degree to the chagrin of the big banks on Wall Street, the last time the Fed met, they did not raise interest rates. Yeah, the next meeting is December fifteenth and sixteenth. I'm tempted to ask you what's going to happen, and I know that I can't ask you that. But what should happen? What like if you're if Janet Yellen picks up the phone and calls you and just says, Morgan, I just want your best advice. What advice are you giving the Fed chief? What I would say is, like, look, you should—they should raise interest rates when it becomes necessary, which would be, which would mean when the economy and wages are growing fast enough that inflation were a real threat. That's when they should raise interest rates. And I think if you look at any of the standard uh, metrics right now, unemployment rate, wages, things like that. Is there evidence that there that we are risking runaway inflation right now, or even a minor uptick in inflation? The answer is no. What would worry me, and I think this is this is a pretty common worry, is that the Fed and, and Janet Yellen just feel pressure to raise interest rates because it's been so long, and that it's not really economically necessary right now. But they just feel pressure to do it. I don't think that's that big a deal, because we're talking about raising rates from zero percent to maybe 0.2 percent. It's it's so trivial. It's it's kind of hilarious. But it's uh, it, it does get a little a little scary, I think, when uh, policymakers with that much power start traveling down the road of we should just do this because we have pressure to do it, not because it's necessary. Maybe. And because of that, I think there's also a decent chance that, that they won't raise interest rates until it becomes necessary. Uh, People have been saying they're going to raise interest rates for six years, and it hasn't been necessary, so they didn't. I was going to say maybe it's just because I'm paying closer attention, but it really does seem like. Very large entities are making it clear what their opinion is. I mentioned the big banks. Who we had uh, Kayla Tausche from CNBC on the radio show recently, and she talked about, how, yeah, of course the banks would love for the Fed to raise interest rates. And on the other side, you've got, you know, the basically most other countries. You know, you got the the European Central Bank saying, no, 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 do not right. raise interest rates. And I'm I'm wondering. I, based on what you said, that sounds like that's not helping the equation. Well, and what's really true are are other countries in South America and Asia, weak countries that borrow debt in dollar terms, 
and now have to pay it back. And when the Fed raises interest rates, that strengthens the value of the dollar, which weakens their currency. So now they have dollar-denominated debt that they have to pay back with their weakened currency. So when we start raising rates, it makes it much more difficult for them to repay their debts. So those countries certainly want the Fed to hold off. But you know, the Fed's mandate is to strengthen the U.S. economy, not to worry about the debt of Argentina. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not that concerned. Not just because of the time horizon I have as an investor, but just because I, I have faith in Janet Yellen. I, she, That's probably she, fair. Yeah. She, she just, she beyond just being as smart as she is, she also seems like someone who is. No one's impervious to pressure, but she seems like a pretty cool customer. She's pretty good. A lot of people are gonna are. I, I can already hear the hate mail from from this statement that I'm about to make. <laughs> I would say marketfoolery at fool dot com <laughs> is our email address, and we'll be happy to forward any of it to Morgan. For how much power they have and how much damage they can inflict, the past three or four Fed chairmen, I think, all things considered, have been very smart, competent, wise people. That's controversial, but I, I would say that, I would say that's true. You think for, all, for all their failings, the housing bubble and whatnot, for all their failings, I think Janet Yellen, Ben Bernanke, and even Alan Greenspan are smart and capable capable people. Particular Ben Bernanke. Market full. Have you read his new book, by the way? I have it on my Kindle. I haven't started reading it yet. Okay. Why? You've been busy. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> I think this is your first time back in the studio since becoming a father. That's probably true. Yeah. Everybody's good at home. Everyone's good. Everyone is sleeping right now, except for me. That's true. <laughs> I, I I just came to the studio 20 minutes ago. I walked here from home, and when I left, everyone was sleeping. That's good. Wife and baby. You want that? Yeah. You want that. Yeah. Um, what do you know now about being a father that you didn't know, say, a month ago? I'm sure there are plenty of things, but just pick one. Eight hours of consecutive sleep. Not necessary. <laughs> Not, or, or, or maybe it is necessary, but... Uh, you, you can you can you can technically live without it. Yes, you can. Or you can be forced to, te- to live without it. Well, you're going to be. We're, we're doing it one way or another. Uh, the other thing is that babies grow rather quickly. Like like we, I, my wife's grandmother would always say that when you have a baby, you look at them every morning, and they look different. She's been saying that for years, and I always thought, oh, well, she's she's exaggerating. This <laughs> you thought no, it's, she's old. She's old. She's just making stuff up. It's totally true. Every single morning, he's he looks different. Well, and the thing uh, you'll discover as they get older is that um, you'll know when they're going through growth spurts. Yeah, because then all of a sudden, your kid is sleeping really uh, sleeping more than average. Yeah, and sleeping hard. Yeah. So, uh, marketfoolery at fool dot com is our email address. Uh, got an email from Jeff Spears. I recently read Morgan Housel's financial advice for my son column. As a father of a baby girl, I'd like some feedback from seasoned fathers on how best to save for a newborn. And Jeff goes on. To, I won't read the whole email, but goes on to explain a variety of things that he's exploring. And he concludes with, "Maybe I'm just overthinking this whole thing, and I should stick with a 529 plan." But any advice is welcome. Um, I'll let you weigh in. Even though I'm a more experienced father, you're uh, more experienced on the financial stuff than I am, but. I think if you have a newborn, kind of like we say about investing, 
if all you do is invest in an S and P 500 index fund yeah. with low fees and just put that off to the side and add to it on a regular basis and never worry about it, you're going to do better than average. And I think the same goes for saving for your kid. If all you do is just set up a 529 plan, yeah, sock some money away on a regular basis. You're ahead of the majority of people. Yeah, it might sound flippant, but I think the best advice when people say, "How should I save for my kid?" is ninety percent of it is just just do it, just save, just just make sure you're saving money. Like there's there's not much of a secret to doing it other than you're going to have to work hard and set some money aside. I would say the most advantageous vehicle to do it is probably a five twenty nine plan because you can put a ton of money into them, and it's tax deferred growth. And if you're using it for college, then then it's tax free withdrawals. The one potential issue you could get with that. There are two things. Is that one, once you, once your child is 18 or 20 years old, they don't want to go to college. And then you have all this money set aside for college that is specifically earmarked for tuition and they don't they don't want to go to school. I think that that's a that's a big risk. Uh, number two is that they absolutely want to go to college, but they're going to get a scholarship, which is a good that's a good problem to have, yeah. but it's a problem nonetheless. You have all this money that has to be used for tuition. And if you could, you could give that to a nephew or another child or something. But not everyone has that that option. So those are, I think, the uh, not the risks of 529s that don't get talked about enough. I, th- I think a lot of parents are being very wise and responsible by socking away a ton of money in a 529, and in 18 years they're going to say, "Oh, well, we don't really need this." <laughs> but like you said, you know that's a good problem to have. My, good, yeah. My oldest is a junior in high school, and. Uh, yeah, I would love to have the problem of someone offers her a scholarship. But but then what are you going to do with all the money? Would you would you transfer it to a niece? Is there a way I could launder it back to myself? We can talk about it later. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, probably not into a microphone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, you know, we, we we were chatting about this earlier and I think I think this is something because it's it's great to um, to think that far ahead and and particularly if you have uh, a newborn and, congr- and by the way, congratulations, Jeff, on on your baby girl. Hope uh, hope everything is is well at home. Um, but I think that as we've talked about from time to time, what can be really fun, and this applies to adults. I've realized this over time. This applies to adults, not just kids. But as you start to as your kids start to get older, and you, the ways that you can get your kids interested in investing works for adults as well. And it's basically don't oversell it. Yeah, you're you're not going to do well if you try and sit your six or seven year old kid down and explain investing to them. But if you just can begin to connect the dots with your children or your friends, because I hear that from time to time from listeners who uh, either come here to the fool or get an email, and and it almost doesn't matter their age, twenties, thirties, forties, whatever, they're interested in investing. And they kind of wish more of their friends were, or people in their family. And it, I, I think it's the same for adults as it is for kids. If you just start to help them connect the dots, so when you're sitting with your friend at Starbucks, and you just drop, a, oh yeah, I own, I own this company. Yeah, you know that kind of thing. I don't know. What do you think? I think one common denominator among people who are good with money and have have been, have been good with money for a long time. Is that when they were growing up as kids and young adults, their parents made them involved in financial in their own financial decisions rather than doing it for them. So rather than the parents, uh, you know, the, the the biggest one that sticks out for me are the number of peop- kids who go to college whose parents completely uh, take care of the student loan process and the tuition process. When I went to college, my my, my parents 
help them, help me through college. But it was, you know, I had to figure out when the tuition was due and how it was going to get paid, who was gonna, making sure the check was written and in the mail in the right time. If, if you're intimately involved in that situation, rather than something happen, when, rather than a parent holding your hand, I think you start connecting the dots much faster than other people. And I see that among a lot of people who are good with money, is that from the time they're 10, 12 years old, the parents would give them an allowance, but then how that allowance was spent, how the bills were paid, the actual paying of, of paying of things, handing the card to the cashier was always done by them. So they were very familiar with the financial process from a young age. Do you have a greater appreciation of napping now than you did a month ago? I'm actually sleeping right now. <laughs> Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 